You're on Community Radio 2XX, you're on Behind the Lines, you're listening to Scotty, and we're going to jump straight into it. Uh, on the line, we have Fion Skiatis. How are you, Fion? Good, thanks, Scotty. Yeah. Oh, excellent. So, we're going to have a bit of a yarn about the, uh, the, the Democratic Confederation of Northern Syria. Um, how, did you, uh, how did you hear initially about Northern Syria? Well, I, I read a letter by Professor John Tully at Vic, Victoria University um, at the time of the siege of Kobani back in uh, 2014. Um, and I was very moved by that letter. Um, it described the heroic defence of the city by the um, Kurdish Freedom Forces. And um, so after, after I reading that, I made some inquiries. turns out that John is involved in a small group here in Melbourne called Australians for Kurdistan. And um, after a while, I got involved in that. So I've been um, interested in the Kurdish freedom movement since then, learning about it and trying to do what we can here in Australia to support it. So is there, I know there's, there's many Kurds sort of, you know, basically a diaspora around the world. Are there many in Australia? There are a good few. Not, not, it's not one of the largest communities in Australia. Um, here in Melbourne, where we're got quite a few diverse communities. Um, there are many bigger ones, the Greek community from which my own ancestry comes, um, Italians, Spanish and so on. But there's, uh, I think I've heard the figure of something like 5,000 Kurdish people in Melbourne. Um, certainly they are a, a, a sizable community and they're well organised, um, have their own community organisations and those sorts of things. There is a big diaspora though around the world, particularly in Europe. Um, Germany and other European countries have very large numbers of Kurdish people which I believe in total um, in Europe there's something like a million Kurdish people. Yeah, right. So, so who is a Kurd? What, uh, what's the idea of Kurdistan? Well, look, the origins of the Kurdish people are um, a little um, unclear um, and, and, and much discussed. Um, certainly they've been around in the Middle East in the areas that they live in now and, and, and uh, similar areas, or nearby areas, for a very long time. They go back to the the uh, prehistoric days in, in the Middle East. Um, some people have linked their origins with the Medes, who are a, a people of the Middle Eastern area who briefly had an empire back in, in, in very old times. Um, others have said that that connection is not as clear as some think it is, but uh, regardless, um, Kurdish people are a part of the Middle East, a very ancient part of the Middle East. Um, they have been there, they are there now in great numbers. Um, and whatever their origins, there are estimated to be anywhere from 30 to 50 million Kurdish people all up, um, most of them living there in the Middle East. And it's been said that in the Middle East in particular, they are the largest ethnic group or largest group which uh, don't have any recognised form of their own space, whether it's a nation-state or something else. Yeah, right. Uh, and what's the what's the religious roots? Every people's got its religion. Well, yes and no. Um, many Kurdish people are Muslim. Um, some are not. Um, there is a group of Kurds, Kurdish people, who are Yazidis or Ezidis. Um, and my understanding is that these are people who follow a particular uh, religious and cultural uh, system, uh, and so they they identify as. Yazidis, but they are of Kurdish background also. Um, some Kurds are Ale Alevis, which is a, uh, I must admit, I don't know a lot about it, but it's a, 
uh, my understanding is it's a, uh, it has links to Islam, um, but is a, uh, a branch of, or, or, or somewhat different to Islam. Um, there are Alevi people in Turkey, uh, some Kurdish people are Alevi, and some in uh, Syria also. Um, so they're, they're predominantly Muslim, but of mixed religious background. Um, but all Kurds certainly know that they are Kurds. What about the neighbouring sort of countries? Where Where is Kurdistan? Well, Kurdistan is, well, the areas that are Kurdish are, div- are divided between four countries mainly. Um, so a significant part of the, of the nation state of Turkey um, has a majority Kurdish population, particularly in the south uh, east um, and, and some other areas. Uh, if you look at where the, on the map where the majority of the Kurdish population is. Um, so Kurdish people refer to that area as North Kurdistan. Um, a significant part of what's now Iraq is also Kurdish, and Kurdish people refer to that as South Kurdistan. Um, the north of Syria, um, the area that's referred to as Rojava, uh, which is Kurdish for Western, or West to the West, um, is another part of Kurdistan, and obviously referred to as West, Western Kurdistan. And then also a significant population of Kurdish people in Iran, um, in, in the west of Iran, but that's regarded as East Kurdistan. So it's a contiguous, more or less contiguous area, um, split between Turkey to the north, Iran to the east, Iraq to the south, and Syria to the west. And, and how did that sort of come to be like that? I mean, we're talking... 10, 30 to 50 million people, and it must be quite a large area. It is a large area, yeah. It's a very significant part of Turkey, a uh, very significant part of Iraq, the, the northern part. Um, again, a significant population in Iran and right across the north of Syria. Um, and look, the population, my understanding is population has sort of moved um, over probably over millennia, but certainly in more recent times, uh, sometimes as a result of uh, persecution and, and lack of tolerance. Um, you know, in the north of Syria, for example, we had a very strong Kurdish population. There were attempts by the there were attempts by the um, Ba'athist regime, the Assad regime, to Arabize the northern areas, and they created Arab villages and Arab areas, or majority Arab areas, along the border with Turkey. This was a deliberate program back when the Assad regime controlled that that area. Um, so Kurdish people were moved out. Um, Kurdish people have also been subject to arbitrary lack of recognition of their citizenship of those countries. So in Syria, I know there was a very uh, consistent, very large program of essentially denying Kurdish people citizenship and, and the rights that go with citizenship under the regime, um, even though they, they lived there and had lived there for a long time. It was, it was very clearly discriminatory against Kurds. Um, in other areas, they have ended up, um, in Turkey in particular, I think, towards the south and the east, um, which are more mountainous areas. Um, Kurdish people have traditionally taken refuge in the mountains when they've been forced to do that by conflict. Um, in fact, there's a well-known Kurdish saying that they have no friend but the mountains, and that's born of long experience and hmm. um, the need to flee to the mountains many, many times as recently as... Um, you know, in the modern era in Iraq, under the uh, uh, Saddam Hussein regime, when Kurdish people rebelled in the north and were forced to flee right up into the mountains. 
um, but eventually got some protection in, in the air from the U.S. Um, but the mountains are a refuge for Kurdish people, and that's proved to be the case in to the north in Turkey, also heading down towards the border with uh, Iraq and Syria. Those areas have been a, um, a refuge for the Kurdish freedom struggle generally and for the PKK, the uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party in particular. So is, is there a Kurdish language? There are Kurdish languages. Um, there are several, I gather. Um, uh, well-known one, I think, is Kurmanji, but there are uh, quite a list. Uh, I, I won't read through it. I'm not sure I'd pronounce the names properly. Um, and and what, I've, uh, what I gather is that, to some extent, these different dialects or, or languages are not mutually intelligible. Um, but uh, certainly there are Kurdish languages and they're well used. Um, after the liberation of northern Syria, for example, uh, obviously Arabic had been the predominant language and um, uh, street names and town names and those sort of things started to be written and displayed in Kurdish again, uh, or Kurd- perhaps for the first time, but Kurdish certainly has been used widely now in, in northern Syria. So how how were the old Kurdish sort of mobs organised? Uh, did they have like clans and tribes or monarchies? Or? I think that, I'm not aware that there was ever a monarchy as such. Um, uh, I think you would say a, a clan or a tribal system um, with you know the, the family at the centre. Um, we're talking probably a fairly traditional culture where um, people were living mostly in agrarian situations in rural settings, in villages. Um, the villages, families, clans were, were key elements of that. Um, a lot of that's changed with the, with the current um, system and the current situation in, in many areas, including in Turkey and in northern Syria. Um, so there have been significant um, changes in modernisation, um, such, for example, that women, the place of women in Kurdish society has, is now really, really different to what it was traditionally. Um, women did not enjoy significant autonomy or freedom in, in traditional Kurdish society, I think that has to be said. Um, but as a result of the Kurdish freedom movement, uh, as it's taken shape in different parts of Kurdistan and, and uh, based on different developments, different political developments at different times, a really strong movement of women's liberation and, and you know, an explicitly feminist movement uh, indeed, a revolutionary feminist movement uh, has emerged and emerged very strongly so that um, the place of women in northern Syria and Rojava is, uh, I mean, it's, it's unlike anywhere else on earth, you'd have to say. Yeah, um, it's pretty amazing. Look, we'll come back to that. We'll come back mm, to sure. that because um, that's definitely worth exploring. Now, with... with uh, here's Kurdistan, and, and there's there's a lot of mountains there. So Kurdistan's fairly mountainous. What proportion sort of mountains do you reckon it would be? Quite a bit of it is mountainous, but um, some is not. Certainly the, the north of Syria, um, the three cantons there that make up Rojava, they're quite flat country for the, for the most part, um, which has been an issue in terms of defending it. Uh, when attacked, um, mountains are easier to defend and hold um, flat country less so, uh, and in this flat country there has been, uh, it's been a very, very productive area in terms of agricultural production. Um, if you visit the north of Syria there, the, uh, the, the Rojava area, I'm told that there's you know, wheat fields that sort of go onto the horizon. So it's a very productive area, um, and very fertile, 
and um, that's not the case in other parts of Kurdistan. As you head towards the east of Rojava, so the border between Syria and Iraq, in terms of the modern nation-states, um, there are mountains, um, and the border between Iraq and Turkey, where, as I said earlier, the, the Kurdish freedom movement has taken refuge, um, and the PKK in particular, that's a very mountainous area, and the north of Iraq, also quite mountainous. So it's, it varies, um, but certainly there are some significant mountain areas in those in, in, within Kurdistan, and um, they've been used over the centuries and over the years more recently yeah, for now, uh, places to flee and, and, and take refuge. Wasn't there a, a great big swamp in the area as well? That I don't know about, but uh, oh. what I can say is that the two significant rivers of the Middle East, the Tigris and the Euphrates, both flow through the Kurdish areas. So um, that has its pros and cons. Um, obviously, if everything's left alone and the ecosystem is looked after, then that's a source of water, and, and that's what makes that area so fertile. Um, on the other hand, it has been used as a tool um, upriver of uh, Kurdistan is Turkey, um, so the, the the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates flow from start in Turkey, and Turkey's not been averse to using that. Um, if you want to go back a little bit, uh, there was a time when the PKK was based in Syria, and one of the levers that Turkey used to uh, force Syria to evict the PKK from Syria was the threat of cutting off water supply. Um, this is back in the in the early 90s, I gather. But more recently, um, Turkey has has and does is now using water flow as a tool of punishment and, and coercion. Um, it's also building a lot of dams um, in in the Kurdish area of Turkey, in North Kurdistan. And in fact, environmental concerns are a key part of the broader Kurdish freedom movement. Um, there are many activists in that area who are fighting on issues of dams, deforestation, and those sort of things. Now, I guess I was asking all of that. Have you have you heard of a fellow called James C. Scott? I haven't, to be honest. <laughs> right. Yeah, so he's a, an anthropologist-y guy who's, who's done a lot of work up in around Vietnam and Southeast Asia, and he's, he's got this theory that there's... Um, certainly in that area, and, and it's interesting to see if it's relevant around the world a bit, there's sort of more status types in the flatlands where the where the grains can be grown and stored and, and wealth can be stored more, and that they tend to develop into sort of more authoritarian regimes in and, and the mountains and swamps and places like that where, uh, where people who flee from those basically go and, and wind up with... Um, more tribal sort of cultures and, and mixed and uh, uh, much more tolerant cultures. Does that sort of ring a bell from what you know there? I think it does, yeah. I think it's an interesting theory or, or, or position. Um, and, and you can probably see that it holds in other parts of the world. Um, I'm thinking of the Amazon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, dense jungle, um, quite impenetrable. Um, I guess the other thing you could say is that a lot of those areas are under threat. So developers... Um, you know, capital sees that as sees, sees those places as places to exploit and develop, or they would say develop. Um, so there, you know, there are very uh, confrontational approaches, um, in some cases very deadly, uh, very lethal, um, to wrest control of land, um, to to de- you know deforest, 
uh, basically take control and use traditional lands for um, you know, for, for for wealth, wealth the, d- the development of wealth, and so on. Um, yeah, in very few hands. So, yeah. so look, I think that theory applies in Kurdistan too. Um, it's, the, the area is somewhat separate from the neighbouring areas, even though there are areas that are flat land and productive. Um, much of the area is mountainous, and it's allowed, at the very least, it's allowed people to retain a strong sense of autonomy and identity. Uh, so, when did this uh, when did this state structure that that's imposed in the area come come about with Iraq and Turkey and so on? Yeah, look, um, Turkey, I guess, has its or- modern Turkey has its origins in uh, events during and after the First World War. Um, uh, during the First World War, you had the remains of the Ottoman Empire, which is essentially a Turkish, ethnic Turkish empire uh, that was collapsing fast during the First World War. And um, at the end of the First World War, there, were, there was a lot of war going, a lot of, a lot of conflict, um, and the modern Turkish state was born in the early 20s. Um, interestingly, at times, the Turkish state under uh, Kemal Ataturk uh, did profess itself to be multi-ethnic, and to welcome the participation of Kurdish people as Kurdish people. Uh, but that, that was um, somewhat unusual over the years and also arguably opportunistic. And more often and very strongly at times, a much more uh, nationalistic and chauvinistic uh, view has prevailed in, in the Turkish state, um, particularly at the, the elite levels, um, the military and so on. Um, and that has been that has meant uh, a terrible existence for the Kurdish people of Turkey. There've been there've been pogroms, there've been genocide. Uh, other people in Turkey have experienced genocide at the hands of the Turkish state, thinking particularly of the Armenians, uh, the Greeks of the Black Sea, um, and also the Kurdish people. Um, so without going into too much detail about that, there's some really horrific events going back to the 30s and so on, um, and. To the the state that we see today, the modern Turkish state, has its origins in those those times and those events, and is strongly nationalistic, to say the least. Now tempered somewhat by a regime that is uh, Islamist, also. Um, as for the countries south of there, Iraq, Syria, um, they were um, also born in the First World War, I believe, um, but largely through the uh, involvement or intercession of the colonial powers. Britain and France in particular. Um, so there's a well-known couple of uh, British and French, uh, I think they were military intelligence, Sykes and Pico, uh, and they had a significant hand in developing what's referred to as the Sykes-Pico Agreement, uh, which basically divided up the Middle East in a fairly arbitrary way uh, based on the choices of, the, of Britain and France, um, not the choices of the people who lived there. So lines were drawn on maps, and you ended up with Iraq, which was under British control, Syria under French control, Lebanon under French control, Palestine at the time under British control. And um, I think people have commented that uh, thanks to that, there's been endless conflict um, in all those areas ever since. Um, you know, whether there wouldn't have been if people were allowed to determine their own future is a, a moot point, I guess. But certainly the history has been that Britain and France determined what the modern Middle East looked like and it's been unsettled, and uh, there's been significant conflict ever since. I guess in these in these early sort of times, there, were, there was a mob uh, in Syria and Iraq called the, the Ba'ath Party. 
What, what, That's right, uh, yeah. What's their sort of potted history? Look, from what I know, they're, they're essentially Arab nationalists. Um, so they, they believed in uh, those countries becoming independent of Britain and France, which I guess is fair enough. Um, Britain and France were the colonial powers. So the Ba'ath Party came to power in Iraq and uh, I think later in Syria. Um, I think they're different versions of the um, essentially the same ideology. These parties are um, certainly statist. You know, they believe in a strong state, strong military. Um, they they haven't proved to be democratic. They're not overtly religious, so they're not like um, the regime that you have in Iran or other places. Um, they're basically about getting power, retaining power, both in Iraq under Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party there, and also in Syria under Assad. You had very uh, you had regimes which had significant security apparatus, secret police. Um, a lot of people were imprisoned. A lot of people were tortured. Um, you know, I think that's that's been well documented, well known in the world generally. Um, and Kurdish people in Syria were certainly subject to that. So they were doing their best to organise in northern Syria. Um, so the origins of what's now Rojava go back into the period when the regime was in control throughout the country, and Kurdish people were doing their best to organise in northern Syria, and uh, many of those were jailed, imprisoned, and in some situations killed by the regime. Can we just duck across the border and have a quick look at Iran? We probably won't spend a lot of time on Iran, but um, who did you say colonised the Iran Iranians? Uh, look, I don't think Iran was colonised to the same extent. Um, it wasn't part of the British-French carving up of the Middle East. Um, at the time it was Persia, it had its own, its own system, its own rulers. Um, Iran, of course, did become subject to neo-colonial interests. Um, oil was discovered there, of course. Um, there was compliant ruler in the Shah of Persia, the Shah of Iran. And so U.S. interests in particular, British initially in the 50s, and, and also U.S. interests moved in and were, were exploiting the oil in Iran for, for some decades. Uh, eventually, of course, you had an anti-U.S. uprising and the return of Ayatollah Khomeini in the late 70s. And from then on, you've had what's essentially a theocratic regime in, in Iran, so overtly religious system, which basically runs the country. Um, the clergy have the final say. Um, the supreme leader is a, has to be a, from, the, from the Shiite clergy. Um, so it's independent of colonial and neo-colonial powers, but it's a very repressive regime. And again, particularly with regard to Kurdish people living in Iran. So in the west of Iran, there's a band of territory which is predominantly Kurdish. Um, Kurdish people think of it as Eastern Kurdistan, and Kurdish people are very heavily repressed there, and whenever they try to express their identity and uh, any kind of separate politics from the the one accepted regime in, in Iran, they're also given a very, very hard time. And recently, in fact, we've had um, hangings and similar atrocities going on. So it's, it's, it's very... It's an active and very significant persecution going on there. Yes, which is starting to get a bit familiar looking into this story. <laughs> uh, it is, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll duck back over to, to northern Syria. And, and, and what happened after, the, uh, after the, uh, the, the creation of the Syrian state, I suppose, under the, under the French? Um, look, the, the Ba'athists took control. Um, 
eventually uh, a figure called Hafez Assad became the, uh, well, took power, um, effectively a dictator, I think you'd say. Um, this is the father of the current um, Assad, who's in, in power now. Um, as I said, it was a regime that basically was a, its primary purpose was to perpetuate its own hold on power. Um, so there were uprisings during the reign, if you like, of uh, Hafez Assad, um, and they were put down very with a lot of violence. Um, these were uprisings in some towns in Syria. Um, uh, the, the Assad regime survived. Um, the son of Hafez, Hafez al-Assad took over. It became a sort of dynasty, if you like. Um, and in more modern times, um, there's been that same history of, uh, you know, the use of secret police, very repressive regime, no tolerance of any other views, um, and so on. So that's been in place in a fairly solid, unshifting way right up until the modern modern times. So on the ground, how does it look? You mentioned there's a bit of agriculture. In northern Syria? Yeah. Yeah, so you have um, a mix of cities and towns and villages. Um, there are three three areas now that make up Rojava or northern Syria, um, and those have uh, there's a, what's regarded as the capital city, Kamishlo, um, and then a number of other cities across the north in a band going across the north along the border with Turkey. Um, and then, of course, a series of smaller towns and a good number of villages. Um, and, uh, yeah, and as I said earlier, a lot of um, agricultural production, wheat, olives. Uh, one of the critiques of the regime, again, from an environmental point of view, has been the, that, uh, uh, the imposition of uh, agricultural systems that were not very diverse. So, uh, what do they call it? Mono monocultures. Um, so people were forced essentially to grow productive crops that could be used for export, um, wheat and olives in particular, um, rather than you know smaller and more diverse production of, of, of things for local needs. And is it irrigated? Because when I look on the map, it looks fairly dry around these areas. Um, look, I, I don't know a lot about that, have to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, there is, there is water, there should be water in supply through the significant rivers that go past, past that part of the world. Um, the Euphrates in particular goes through um, Rojava. Uh, I think the Tigris is more to the east. And the Euphrates is, you know, it's one of the world's big and great rivers. Um, mm-hmm. And if it hadn't been uh, uh, messed with by upriver by the Turkish state, um, I think there would be enough water in the area. Uh, how about uh, how about other sort of um, commodities? I suppose you could call them. Uh, is there oil or anything in the area? I don't think there's oil. No, no. Um, probably would have a different different outlook and different uh, history if, if there if there were. Um, I mean, oil isn't far away, so if you go across the border into Iraq, modern Iraq, the Kurdish area of northern Iraq does have oil, of course. Um, and, look, it has a very different politics. Um, the Kurdish freedom struggle has, has, has emerged in northern Syria and uh, it's very strong in Turkey, is less so in northern Iraq. What you have in northern Iraq, in the Kurdish area, the Kurdish regional government, KRG, uh, more sort of Western-style parties, um, social democratic liberal parties, 
two main Kurdish parties, which have sort of been fighting for control of that area, um, with one coming out on top. Um, and one of their main focuses is to exploit the oil resources. They've done that, and a great deal of wealth flows from that, and ideally that would be used for the benefit of everybody, but surprise, surprise, it hasn't been. Um, so, you know, commentators, I don't particularly want to go into a lot of detail about the Kurdish part of Iraq, but, um, you know, commentators have said you've got a great deal of corruption, money does corrupt after all, um, so you've got people, you know, from what I've heard about it, um, descriptions of it, it's an area that is not particularly productive. There's almost too much money in the sense that they can buy commodities, they can buy luxuries indeed. Um, so there's, there's flash cars, there's a lot of uh, buildings being developed. Um, and in fact, you know, again, from an environmental point of view, they're pretty much abusing the area. Um, and they can do that with the funds that flow from the oil. Mm. So oil is a useful commodity, but a mixed blessing in the sense that it usually brings with it exploitation and, and corruption uh, and pretty dirty politics. So yes. in some ways, Rojava, which lacks oil um, and relies on simpler things like ag- agriculture, um, is, is doing better, better in terms of the people that actually live there, I think. So how was that agriculture sort of structured in a, in a power sort of sense? Were there like big landlords and peasants or...? A feudal sort of thing? Look, again, I don't know a lot about that in detail, but um, my understanding is that under the Ba'ath regime, under the Assad regime, um, land was... Um, you know, people were forced to adopt fairly large land holdings and they were forced to adopt productive crops that could be used for sale and export. Um, but I believe that under the... Uh, you know, with, with the regime essentially disappearing from that area... Um, and other forms of, of organisation of society, um, there's been a return to uh, a different approach to agriculture and, and to the environment in general. So you've got production of um, food that's needed by the area. Um, and as you said, we can get onto this in more detail uh, separately, but my understanding is that um, you know, uh, luxury goods are in short supply in Rajava. There's really no way to bring them in. They're forced to be almost self-reliant, I think. Um, certainly for for the essentials of daily life, and yeah. so so you know they, they take good care to grow enough food, um, to have have you know basic transport and those sort of things. Obviously, uh, towns and and the cities need to be maintained and looked after. They're managing all that, but it's not an economy that's um, you know anything like what we would recognise as a Western capitalist economy. In in two thousand and ten, there was was it in Tunisia? There was some some fella had had enough, and he set himself on fire, and something really big started out of that. Yes, that's right. The the Arab Spring, people call it. Um, so it was, but by the time that took hold, it was spring of two thousand and eleven, I think, the Northern Spring, so the early part of two thousand and eleven. Um, and this became a movement uh, initially in Tunisia, as he said, and then started to spread and spread right across the Middle East. Um, and was a, a popular uprising, expressing you know very strong discontent with um, the autocracy that is really predominant right across the Middle East. So in places like Egypt, uh, then in Syria and, and other parts, the Gulf states, um, this, this popular revolt against autocracy and control, the abuse of power, 
uh, the lack of democratic freedoms, freedom of association and so on, freedom of expression. This became quite a powerful movement, and, and in Syria also. Yeah, so how did it manifest in Syria? It manifested in Syria with, with protests, um, which caught on and started to spread. Um, they, were, they were repressed, um, so people were, were arrested, people were tortured, in some cases people were killed as a result of torture or killed on the streets. Um, and so that led to you know, increased uprising. And it got to the point where several key towns in Syria had effectively rebelled against the regime, um, and that was the, the start of what has become the very significant Syrian civil war. And uh, how did northern Syria um, react in this sort of circumstance? Was there a big, big conflict up there? There was, yeah. And, and look, it has um, origins from before that. So the Arab Spring was a, was a factor, but not the only factor. So in northern Syria, it's probably worth going back a little bit further just to the time mm-hmm. when um, the PKK, so the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which was the um, main expression of the Kurdish freedom movement, Kurdish freedom struggle, um, it took refuge in Syria and the north there um, mainly uh, during the 80s and 90s. Um, and as I said earlier, Turkey started to use various levers, um, including water, as I mentioned, and the threat of military action, um, to force Syria at the time to to uh, evict um, most of the PKK. Um, this also led to the um, eviction of, in personal terms, um, of the PKK leader, Abdullah Ocalan, um, and he was forced to, to, to leave Syria. And I think it's well known that when that happened, um, various shadowy forces, people have talked about the CIA, people have talked about Mossad from Israel, um, Greece, to its shame, played a role. And uh, initially... Uh, Mr. Ojalan was forced to shuffle around from one country to another. He ended up in uh, Kenya, I believe, took refuge in the Greek embassy there and was then kidnapped from there and um, taken to Turkey and, and tried and imprisoned. Yeah, you're quite right to uh, to start a bit earlier there, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what, what so was there before the PKK? We'll actually cover the PKK now. I was going to do it later, but yes, now's a better time. What other resistant group were there before them? They formed in the 1970s. What was around, say, in the 50s and 60s? It's a time we haven't really covered. Yeah, look, I'm not sure about the details of the actual organisation. I do know that, um, you know, Kurdish resistance has been uh, continual. So there was persecution and resistance going back to the early days of the Turkish state, the modern Turkish state, 20s and the 30s. Um, and, and it's taken different forms of expression at different times. Um, there were times, of course, um, in the earlier 70s, before the PKK was formed, when um, leftist groups in Turkey, revolutionary leftist groups, were quite, were quite strong, quite effective. So for a period, I think the um, Kurdish uh, resistance became part of or subsumed into a broader Turkish uh, resistance to what was then military control of the state and, and from time to time military coups. Um, now, eventually, I think the Kurdish freedom movement separated itself from that broader resistance, um, and you had the, the foundation of the Kurdistan Workers' Party by Abdullah Öcalan and others. 
um, and that then became the most um, uh, the predominant, the most effective part of the Kurdish freedom struggle. Um, yeah. And, so that, and who was in the the PKK when it started? Well, a small group of people initially, um, and then it became more popular. Um, you had a mix of um, people, obviously women and men. Um, some of the, the w- women who were there at the beginning who were founders. Um, I think had a lot of students, probably some professional people, um, and people simply drawn from Kurdish society. So they would have been a range of, you know, city-based folk and rural folk. Um, and and you know the PKK has transformed itself over the years. Um, initially, it was um, it's been described as a Marxist-Leninist party, probably more of a traditional um, national liberation movement, perhaps along the lines of uh, what you might find in other countries. Um, but since then, has undergone a very interesting and quite profound shift in its approach and its ideology um, to the to the very different approach they have now. So was it a was it a very top down sort of organisation? Look, I think it probably was more of a top down organisation than it is now. Um, you know, so you had its founding by key a key a small key group. Um, it was a, it was a party. It had cadres, so you know, central organising people, um, and their relationship with the broader um, Kurdish resistance and Kurdish struggle for autonomy and freedom. Um, you know, was was characterised, I think, by the by the party making decisions about its direction, um, giving instructions and those sort of things. Now, um, that has certainly shifted um, for a long time now. Uh, one of the most significant factors was, in fact, the imprisonment of Abdullah Ojalan, and he spent some years after imprisonment reviewing very widely the history of Kurdish people all kinds of political theories, uh, prehistory, uh, ethnography, um, and so on. And that caused him to profoundly rethink um, the PKK's position, for example, around whether Kurdistan should be set up as a separate state, a separate nation. So I think initially the PKK did have the aim of a creating a Kurdistan, a country called Kurdistan, a nation called Kurdistan, separate from Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and so on. Um, but at some point, people realised that, and it wasn't just the leader, but Abdullah Ojalan, this was also, uh, there was, a, there was a, a process and, a, and a quite a significant um, period of questioning and rethinking um, that had lots of different facets. One was around this question of whether uh, the PKK and the Kurdish freedom movement more generally should push for a nation-state, but another element, and a very profound element, was around the role of women. Um, so there was a very profound questioning of gender roles in, in the Kurdish freedom movement. Um, the upshot of it was that the desire to have a separate Kurdish state was abandoned. Um, and um, among other things, the writings of an American uh, libertarian thinker called Murray Bookchin were very influential in uh, Abdullah Ujalan's readings and, and in the series that he developed. So he developed a theory called democratic confederalism, yes. which takes a very different tack to um, you know, sim- the simple push for in- an independent nation-state. 
So just before we go there, with the, sure. the PKK, once it developed, it was actually uh, quite a large and well-organised guerrilla force. And Was it fighting Syrian government and Turkish government? Or? Uh, not as far as I know. It was, it was fighting a, a guerrilla war in Turkey. In Turkey. Um, yeah. You're right, it was a large and effective force. Um, uh, I should say that the PKK has an, an armed wing, um, now known as the HPG, so it's not actually PKK itself that's doing the fighting, but 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 um, groups associated with it. Um, look, it's it's a defensive war. Um, they're not seeking to attack or take on the broader Turkish military. That'd probably be unwise, among <laughs> other things. <laughs> um, it's a very large large military state you have in Turkey, but they simply want to be free in the areas that they live in. Um, and when they seek to do that, they're they're attacked and persecuted. So it becomes a defensive struggle, um, defensive conflict. Yeah, and at yeah. times they've had to withdraw from Turkey towards the border with Iraq and into the mountains, as I said earlier. Um, and that's in fact where their, their base is um, in terms of the, most of their active members and their active members of the, of the you know, active guerrillas, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. I, now, I don't uh, believe that they were fighting the Syrian government as such. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, I believe that uh, out of this sort of uh, fighting with, with Turkey and, and standing up to them, they, they became listed as a terrorist organisation. Well, that's exactly right, yeah. yeah. Um, now, that's a pretty big factor in what's going on now, isn't it? It is. Um, so the PKK has been listed or banned or prescribed as a terrorist organisation in many countries, um, sadly in, in European countries, um, in the US, not surprisingly, perhaps, in Australia, um, New Zealand, UK, and so on. Um, now, in many cases, this is clearly at the behest of the Turkish regime, the Turkish state. Um, that's very clear in, in Australia, for example. Um, the, the listing of the PKK goes back to 2006. Um, you had a visit by the then Prime Minister Erdogan, um, met with John Howard, I think, at the time, um, and... One of the things they discussed when he was here was greater cooperation between the security forces of Australia and Turkey. And then, lo and behold, a matter of weeks after he left, after the Turkish Prime Minister left, you had the PKK added to um, the the list of banned organisations in Australia. What does it mean for an organisation to be on this banned list? Yeah, it means that you can't be a member of it in Australia. Um, you can't support that organisation financially. Obviously, members of that organisation can't come to Australia, um, and uh, there are pretty strong limits on the extent to which you can support or express support for an organisation that's, that's, that's banned. So it makes it very difficult for the Kurdish movement here to you know, support or, or uh, be involved in the organisation that is their expression of their, their political ambitions and political aims. What sort of punishments are on the books if you uh, if you do wind up say sending well, five bucks over there? Yeah, potentially very significant ones. I mean, this is terrorism legislation, which is the flavour of months these days. Um, although this, this particular uh, form goes back some way, um, and yeah, there are very very significant penalties available at least um, if for people that uh, transgress these prohibitions. Um, for the most part, they haven't been used in the case of the PKK, although there is a case currently underway. Um, a chap called Renas Lelikan, a Kurdish journalist, 
travelled to um, those parts uh, some years ago, and um, he, he maintains that he was there as a journalist looking into what the PKK and other groups are doing. Um, but when he came back to Australia, he's an Australian Kurd, um, he was arrested and, and was charged with, among other things, being a member of the PKK. Um, and, and that trial's um, underway, let's say, in, in New South Wales and Sydney. Um, yeah. So, so it's an effective ban. Um, it's worth saying that there are, I think, some 25 now organisations on that banned list. And the PKK sticks out like a sore thumb. It's the only organisation on that list that is not um, extremist Islamist. So you have, you know, IS, you have uh, various other groups um, that, that have, you know, appeared in the Australian media over the years. Um, uh, you know, the Jabhat al-Nusra and the, more, the ones who, which have caused mischief here closer to Australia the ones that are responsible for the bombings in Bali and so on, they're all on that list, and probably rightly so. Um, and then the PKK is on there. And and why does that stick out? Well, PKK is not Islamist, it's not extremist. What does the PKK stand for? Well, you could probably summarise it in three main uh, elements of its platform. It stands for grassroots democracy, real democracy. It stands for women's freedom and emancipation. So it's a feminist organisation, feminist party, uh, explicitly without any apologies. And the third plank is uh, an ecological one. Um, so, you know, essentially like the Greens that we have here. <laughs> so it's a party that's pro-women, uh, a Middle East party is pro-women, pro-democracy and uh, green in its approach. And despite those things, which you wouldn't think would be too confronting to most Australians, it's on a terror list. Yeah, well, you know, you have a look at the uh, what the secret police in Australia have been looking at over the years. It's not really the right-wing fascists, is it? It's bloody greenies and communists. That's right. You're going back a long way. It's generally the case. Um, yeah. In fact, my own family has some experience in that area. <laughs> um, <laughs> proudly so. <laughs> but you'd think that these days, you know, they would have got the picture a little more. Um, so there have been attempts, most recently, just in the last few months this year, to have the PKK removed from the list. Um, and, and, and certainly the Kurdish communities here in Australia have argued each time. The way it works is it has to be renewed. Um, it, was, it used to be every three and now every... Sorry, it used to be every two and now it's every three years. Um, so since 2006, when it's come up each time, it has been renewed. In 2006, there was some argument about it, at least, um, on the parliamentary committee. There's a thing called the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security when the PKK was put on the banned list in 2006, two Labor members of that committee um, uh, differed in their views and had their different views recorded. Um, they were Duncan Kerr and uh, Senator John Faulkner. Um, unfortunately, since then, um, it's become something of a rubber stamp and the committee has simply, each time it's come up, has simply said, yeah, we'll, we'll relist the PKK. Um, and the Labor members of that committee have never said boo since then. Mm. Um, each time they're relying on information that is not made public, of course, um, from the security organisations. Um, and, you know, without knowing for sure, you'd have to think that the information from the Turkish security organisation, the MIT, has, been, has played a significant part in um, the information that the Australian security forces rely on. 
and you know the independence and objectivity of that information is you have to say highly questionable obviously it's an aim of the Turkish state to have the PKK banned um, and so they supply information that supports that view yeah. um, All right. so far yeah, the Australians we... haven't questioned that and they've banned yeah. the PKK right up to today all right, now we'd better get on with the real, the real thing here, the Democratic Confederation of Northern Syria. So when, when, um, when the Arab Spring sort of happened and, and there was uprisings down south in Syria, um, what happened in northern Syria? Well, there were uprisings there too. Um, so, in fact, there had been uprisings prior to that. Um, 2004, for example, you had an uprising in Kamishlo, the big city that's now regarded as the capital. Um, it started around a soccer game where there was confrontation, um, there was provocation of the Kurdish people who were there, led to violence, and then that was a spark that led to an uprising and a crushing of that revolt at the time. Yeah. Um, so you had organising going on under the regime, uh, covertly, um, very carefully. People were being arrested. Nothing could be in the open, but you certainly had... You had an organisation called the P PYD, a, a political party, a Democratic Union Party in in English, um, and that that has a platform that's very close to the PKK, and they're, they're ideologically obviously allies. Um, they're not the same organisation by any means; they're, they're very separate organisations. But the PYD has played a significant role in northern Syria. So people were organising at the time of the Arab Spring. Um, so by July 2012, you had a series of popular uprisings, um, and that led to... Look, what happened, my understanding, is essentially the, the regime uh, abandoned the north of Syria. They probably realised that they had their work cut out, um, getting on top of rebellions in other parts of the country, very significant rebellions. So they, they basically left um, northern Syria to its own devices, um, I mean, there were uprisings, and for example, in the in the middle of the night, in eighteenth to the nineteenth of July, two thousand twelve, in the town of Kobani, which was later to become very world famous for its um, confrontation with IS and the resistance to IS. But at that time, in two thousand and twelve, the people of Kobani, um, under the uh, leadership of the People's Militia, the YPG, effectively seized control of the town. It was it was bloodless. Um, where there were regime forces, either military forces or security forces, they were surrounded by people, uh, by masses of people, and invited to to leave. And for the most part, that, that's what they chose to do. They simply departed, um, and there wasn't bloodshed. Um, this was repeated in other towns um, and, and, and cities of northern Syria. Um, there were there was minimal. Um, bloodshed at times. There were some regime forces which refused to leave, and there was some some conflict. Um, but for the most part, it was a fairly uh, conflict-free um, abandoning of the area by the regime forces and uh, taking over popular control by people. Uh, there's a mob called Tevdem who, who's there at the moment. This is the PYD and, and a couple of other groups. Who are the, who are the other groups in there? Well, there are other parties um, which have, uh, have uh, come along with the PYD. The PYD is not the only political party in northern Syria. Um, Tevdem is a is a broader mass movement. It, it stands for the um, 
movement for a democratic society. And it, it brings in not just political parties, but um, civil society groups, um, so sort of mass groups. And, and it's a, a broad umbrella movement, as, as it's called, um, which, which supports and, and gives form to this uh, institution of democratic confederalism in, in northern Syria. So, how so it's a broad-based the, movement. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how, how does this, this system work? What's, uh, what's sort of the smallest unit in it, I guess? Well, it gets, my understanding is it gets right down in, in, in towns in particular to um, the level of uh, a neighbourhood, so a street can come together and form a unit. Um, it's, it's, it's drawing from libertarian models and thinking, going back in various uh, places and various, various writers and thinkers. But it's basically about um, small units coming together and then confederating or you know, uh, establishing... Uh, uh, higher level units um, and control, having sending people along to those having control through the delegates that are sent um, and and you have a I mean it's a, a little bit complicated the system that prevails in northern <laughs> Syria it's hard to sort of outline it in any really simple terms um, uh, but you do have a, a confederating system whether a low level as in street level um, or in the in the countryside village level uh, groups um, where people come along and discuss things and make decisions together, generally through a consensus approach, um, and then they then they federate um, to a higher level. So in the towns, you might have several groups uh, in the town, and then of course at some point you have a a, a body that's making decisions about the town itself. Mm. In cities, that's again you have. Um, the lowest level confederating at the level of a, an area or a suburb, um, we probably think of it. And then, again, councils coming together that make decisions about the city itself. Um, and it's a, it's a system that involves a lot of meetings, it involves people. Um, so it's not like you go along and vote once every three years and that's it. You're drawn into meetings at all kinds of levels. Um, there's very deliberate decisions about women having an equal role in at all levels um, and that's that's um, you know given given a formal uh, uh, expression in the structure um, and it's also very much part of the practice um, the, the complicating side is that you have you have um, similar structures um, there are eight what they call commissions which look at things like health education and so on um, we'd probably think of them more in terms of, you know, our ministries and departments. They take a different form in Northern Syria. Um, of course, some of them have to do with defence and security. They're forced to do that. They're living in a, a conflict and a war zone. Um, and these eight commissions also interact with these federating bodies at all levels um, and have representatives sent to them and report back to the and are controlled by the by the federating um, councils. Can we start by just checking out the, the, the smallest level one? It's, um, it's called a commune, is it not? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah the lowest level. Yeah. It's a bit unfortunate with the Cold War just behind us, really, but that's all right. Um, so there's about oh, 100 to 200 households in a commune. Is that sort of the idea? Um, the information that I've looked at talks about between 30 and 200 households, okay. yeah, which could be a residential street or in the countryside it could be a whole village. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And is it mandatory to be part of the commune if you're living in that area? Um, look, I think in practice you'd, you, w- you would want to be. Um, I don't know if you're forced to go to meetings, but um, from what I've read of people who visited the area and reported on what they saw, um, people have embraced this. So there's a very strong system of, you know, neighbourhood houses. Um, they have a system called the... or they have a building called the Malagiel, which is the people's house, the people's buildings. And these are where meetings take place. Um, you know, they, they consider all kinds of issues. Um, and can take quite some time, I think, <laughs> to meet and make decisions. So it's it's a really it's it's hands-on democracy. Basically, you're you're brought into decision making about your life, about your community, um, and as decisions need to go up higher to to a to a higher level because they involve a whole city or a whole area in the countryside. Um, you know, bigger issues, if you like. Then then there is a system of uh, sending delegates along to to higher level bodies mm. um so you're right you're right yeah you have the commune at the lowest level and they talk about the neighborhood which is um from seven to thirty communes coming together um in the countryside again that would take the form of um villages coming together perhaps seven to ten villages um and so on and then you have the district level um and, and up to a level that um encompasses all of Northern Syria. Yeah. Um, and just to complicate matters, you also have a parallel structure um, just for women. Mm-hmm. So again, this is a very real expression of the underlying commitment to women's emancipation, women's freedom. Um, so all of those bodies have um, women-only um, bodies as their equivalent. Um, certain decisions around things like family life, domestic violence, um, the role of women and so on are reserved for those women's bodies. So in short, I guess women are making decisions about women's lives. Um, you know, in, in, in the popular reporting in the West, um, the, the most visible sign of these women's, you know, these autonomous women's decision-making and organisations has probably been the YPJ. So that's the, the uh, women's defence um, militia. Um, so initially in northern Syria, you, as a defence um, force, you had the YPG, People's Defence um, Militia, People's Defence Unit, as stands for, and uh, fairly early on, the YPJ split off from that. Um, so initially, the YPG was a mixed mixed gender, uh, but when the YPJ split away um, or formed separately, then the YPG became male only. So you have the YPG and the YPJ um, fighting alongside each other, but organised separately, and the YPJ is solely for women. Just ducking back to the communes, um, is, mm. is this sort of is this where sovereignty lies? Oh, no, I'm, I'm thinking of sovereignty as the uh, the ability to make decisions and enforce them. I guess. Um, Look, I think so. Yeah, um, you know, you, you have a, a bottom up system in 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 this democratic confederalism. So control is exercised from the lowest level. Um, people, people made clear to the visitors who, who wrote this up, there's a good book on the subject called The Revolution in Rojava. And, and when you look through that and the people who visited and spent some time there, it was made clear to them that when people are sent from the lower level bodies to the higher ones, um, they're delegates. So they're not free to sort of vote their mind um, as things emerge. 
They need to go back and get instructions from the lower-level group that they were sent from, and they need to do what they're instructed to do. So it's a it's an it's effective control. Um, and uh, uh, look, I think what you have in that area is um, a very interesting, very unique uprising of popular, you know, a popular uprising which has involved lots and lots of people. I wouldn't say everybody. There are probably you know, some who live in that area who haven't really been, been been too bothered with what's going on, but they would be unusual, I would have to say. Um, there's been a popular uprising and people on a very, on a mass scale have been involved, heavily involved in in decision-making and in establishing the political structure and other structures of their, that, that affect their lives. So it's it's democracy in practice, you know. It's, it's grassroots democracy um, put into practice uh, unbelievably in a situation of significant conflict. Um, and when I say significant conflict, I mean you've had the the Assad regime, which, as I said earlier, essentially withdrew from the area, and and generally there have been some conflict, but generally hasn't attacked in any uh, full-on way since then. Um, but you have Turkey to the north which is opposed to any form of Kurdish self-determination, Kurdish freedom. That's so highly antagonistic to this area of Rojava, uh, northern Syria. And then, of course, if, as if that wasn't enough, you had the rise of Islamic State uh, after the establishment of the, the free area in, in northern Syria. So, in fact, for a period, much of that fell to the control of the Islamic State and had to be, that had to be fought back or, or fought against and beaten back um, very slowly and very painfully in, in the sense of lives lost from the population in northern Syria. Um, and and they've been very successful at doing that. So not only are they running an incredibly interesting political structure, they're also um, fighting a war and doing so in a very effective way. And uh, a lot of commentators, again, have said they're not particularly well armed. Um, why are they so successful at fighting... Islamic State, which in fact is well armed because they seized a lot of weapons from the fleeing Iraqi army. Um, they've beaten back much larger forces of Islamic State fighters. Why have they done that? Well, they have obviously strength of purpose. They have unity of purpose. They're defending their own area. They're defending their system that they've set up. And so that makes them very effective fighters. The militias or the militaries organised in a democratic fashion as well. Exactly, yeah. So you have a actually don't have a formal military. They have militias, which are popular militias. Um, and what's the difference join. there? Well, you don't have an armed forces in the sense that um, a nation state has armed forces. Um, armed forces are traditionally, or, you know, without exception, I think, top-down structures. Um, you know, the military makes... The, the, the upper part of the military um, makes decisions and, that, and soldiers are simply expected to act on them without thinking, in most cases. Um, and, and they do as they bid. This is different. This is a popular militia. So people actually join these groups um, and are members of them, but they remain in close contact with the political structures that exist in these um, in this area. Um, and you know, people have again reported that when they've had their backs against the wall, when they've been under attack, the militias and the and the people who join them and, and fight with them are, are indistinguishable. You know, it's, it's a popular response to attack. Um, they are, they are organised on democratic grounds. Um, they have command structures, but these are not com- 
command in the sense that we would think of them in the, in the Western military or the traditional military. Um, these are people who are uh, making decisions in, the, in battles. Um, they're respected by the people that follow them. Um, they can be replaced if they're not effective or they're making decisions that aren't uh, any good. Um, and, you know, they're not, there isn't sort of bowing to authority that is expected in most military uh, forces. Yeah, and I guess if you don't like the leader, you can just vote them out. You vote them out, you can talk to them. Um, so people are expected to report and to, in fact, to, to review their performance in front of all the troops that they command. Um, the troops that they command can voice criticisms. You're not expected to just do as you bid and shut up like you are in, in most military forces. Um, and, and, in fact, there's a very well-organised system of education and training so people are thinking and talking about all the issues that are going on in the system that's been established in that area. Um, so political discussion and political training is part of the uh, training that, that people go through as they enter these militias. Is it uh, a conscription sort of model of volunteers? Or? Look, there is conscription. Um, that was brought in just because of the dire situation that they were facing. Um, so uh, that, was, that was for men. Um, because they just needed to have enough bodies to defend the area from all the threats that they were facing. Um, for women, it, it wasn't compulsory. Um, the conscription, I think it involved six months of service. Um, but look, I, I think in practice you've had a lot of people signing up to join um, without being coerced in any way. Um, yeah, look, if Islamic State was in Queanbeyan, I'd be joining up. Well, exactly, yeah. In fact, they've had people come in from, from overseas. You know, there's been a... Uh, not particularly well publicised, but there have been people from all sorts of countries around the world, um, quite a contingent from the UK, smaller contingent from Australia. Some of these people have been killed, so they become, you know, what, what are referred to as martyrs. Um, so several Australians, in fact, have given their lives fighting with Kurdish people in northern Syria against the Islamic State. Um, they don't get any medals, they don't get any celebration. Um, they're lucky if uh, those that aren't killed, they're lucky if they're not prosecuted when they come back to Australia. Um, I think we should be celebrating what they're doing. I think what they've done is you know, an incredible example to other Australians and to the world. Um, but as I say, they face prosecution because they've done so without the blessing of the Australian state. Yes, and because of that uh, terrorist listing of the PKK, I guess. Well, that's part of it. I mean, in fact, the, the YPG, YPJ, the PYD, none of them are listed as terrorist organisations in Australia. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. Perhaps we haven't done Turkey's bidding in that case. Um, and look, it does need to be said that, you know, there's a real contradiction there because the, the, the US military has supported the YPG and YPJ and the organisation that's been, the, the, the militia organisation that's been set up Subsequent to that, which is called the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, which is a broader body, including the YPG and YPJ, but also other um, armed militias from that area. Some of them have not Kurdish background. They have a group called the Syriac Military Council, for example, that is part of the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, and the SDF has been supported by the US military. They've been armed by them. They've had um, critical air support, aerial support, um, that's been a critical part of beating back IS, to be honest. Um, and you have US soldiers who are on the ground as we speak there in northern Syria. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, 
kind of slightly odd situation. You've got forces of the um, leading Western power in the world, um, the bastion of capitalism and so on, which are, they're, in a sense, supporting a, a structure that is um, very, very different to the US, let's put it that way. Um, you know, it, it, it's a it, it's democratic confederal situation. But um, despite the contradiction, that, that has been very real, um, and the US has acknowledged very explicitly, the US military, the, the um, fighting prowess of the YPG and YPJ and the SDF. Um, they've said that they're great allies and they've fought incredibly bravely and have held their ground at every step and have done the right thing by the people who, whose areas they've liberated. There's never been any reports of you know, indiscriminate killing or anything like that. Mm. So they're a good, they're a reliable military partner and the US has been involved with them. So it would be rather odd for the US or Australia, an ally of the US, to then seek to prescribe or ban the YPG or YPJ that they're effectively fighting with in northern Syria. How they can then go on and ban the PKK, which is um, a close ally and ideologically essentially the same as the northern Syria forces uh, or, or, or movement, is a good question. But then Probably Turkey would. comes into it and... and you know, we've, we've done things at the behest of Turkey, as have the US, for that matter. That's it. Recently, You're only friends yeah. of the mountains, after all. At the end of the day, yes. Um, I don't think anyone in northern Syria relies on the support of the US. Um, you know, they've been happy to have it. They've beaten back Islamic State. Um, an incredible story, an incredible victory, really. Well, I don't think anywhere um, else has managed to do that, have they? Well, they haven't, exactly. So, you know, they've, they've, they've read that part of the world of this scourge, these, these Islamist gangs, and um, what you have to say when you step back is um, what thanks have they got from the world? You know, the world is very focused on Islamic State um, and, and what, the, what they should be doing about it. Generally, they've brought in very strict, you know, security regimes and so on. Um, but the people have actually been doing the fighting on the ground and, and copying it and getting killed are the Kurdish freedom fighters of northern Syria. Mm, and yeah. what thanks do they get? Well, very little, because, um, you know, in the news in recent days has been the fact that Turkey is talking about invading yet another part of northern Syria. They've already yeah, occupied, yeah. attacked and occupied Afrin Canton beginning of this year, um, completely without any justification. They made up things about it's a, Afrin is a threat to Turkey. Well, what kind of a threat could it be? You have a lightly armed people's militia, all they wanted to do was be left alone to run things in Afrin Canton um, as they were doing. They were a refuge to a very significant number of refugees from parts of Syria. Um, despite the huge numbers, I mean, I think you're talking about a popular, relatively small population that was looking after something like a million refugees from Syria, and we're doing that without much support from the international aid agencies or anything like that. So despite doing a fantastic job in that regard, they then had to put up with Turkey threatening and then actually invading and now occupying Afrin Canton. And that's, you know, that's, that's to the absolute shame of the world, the entire world. There wasn't a peep from Australia, barely a peep from the US. Um, a few European politicians expressed some concern, but, you know, none of it was effective and Turkey was allowed to come in and set up... Um, basically Islamist gangs again, um, people without any credibility or, or, or real system of beliefs and they're still occupying that area now. 
mm-hmm. uh, and to make matters worse, they're now saying, well, we're just about ready to attack other parts of northern Syria. So, so the lack of support is just extraordinary when you think of the work that the these people have done in ridding that area of Islamic State. Yeah, so absolutely. What payback do they get? They get no support when they're, when they're attacked, threatened and attacked by Turkey. Now, there's a couple of other things I wanted to cover. We're running right out of time, but um, just back to the communes. There's, uh, is, it, is it exclusively a, a Kurdish thing, the commune? No, it's not. Um, so um, this area of northern Syria is, is predominantly Kurdish, um, and I think it's fair to say that the initial upsurge of interest and activity and organising was in the Kurdish communities. Um, but there's been great care to bring in other people who live in those areas. They're, it's a very diverse area, so you have Arab communities, Arab tribes, you have um, people identify as Syriac, as uh, Aram- Aramaic, I think. Um, you have smaller populations of Armenian people, Chechen people, who've ended up living there as a result of persecution under the Ottoman regime, I think. Um, so it's very mixed. Um, you have Kurds who identify as Yazidis. Um, and the, 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 the political structure in northern Syria has been very careful to bring in all of those groups. And that's, that's reflected um, in various ways, but an example might be um, this area was referred to as Rojava, uh, which is a Kurdish word for the west, in other words, the west of Kurdistan. Um, and most recently, when the um, Democratic Federation of Northern Syria was declared, um, by the um, Syrian Democratic Council, I think it's called. Um, uh, yeah, uh, of which Tevdem, that we mentioned earlier, the, the, the movement for a democratic society is a key part. Um, they removed the word Rajava from the name of the area. Um, and that was a deliberate decision because it's a Kurdish word and it's not just Kurdish people that live in this area. That so was an expression of the pluralism that is given practical effect in these areas. Um, the PKK's platform, the PYD's platform, uh, very explicitly, very very, very clearly pluralist. Um, they're not just Kurdish. They're talking about people getting together to live as they wish, in freedom, uh, associating by choice with each other, and left alone where it's all possible by nation-states to do that. Yeah, now, when... <laughs> we don't have much time here. It's a, it's a bit of a big issue. But um, when when the state goes away and there's a bunch of people left to do everything themselves, that's uh, that's that's pretty big, you know. Um, how how do people stay alive? Well, it is big, um, but people do it. Um, people can do it. I think that's the that's the short message to take home. Um, so no one's starving in in northern Syria. There's there's food production. Um, food, food preparation and so on um, there's a health system there's an education system people are going to school um, in the areas that were liberated from Islamic State more recently towards the, um, the, the south and east so towards the Iraqi border um, these are Arab areas and so the city of Raqqa for example mixed, mixed city but um, including a lot of Arab people no one had gone to school there for a long time this was a bastion of Islamic State um, and one of the first things that was done when, when the um, Democratic Federation liberated that city was to reinstitute schools um, and so on. So, you know, people are very busy. They're organising all the things 
or most of the things that we would um, think are essential parts of life, uh, food, shelter, health, education, um, and of course the organising has to include defence and security because of the situation there. Um, as I said earlier, in Afrin Canton, the westernmost of the three cantons that make up the Federation, uh, very significant numbers of refugees had, 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 uh, had, had arrived there and were being looked after by the population. Um, so, you know, an additional very significant burden was taken into stride. So people are, doing, are capable of doing amazing things. What you probably won't see if you go there are um, shops laden with designer goods, um, luxuries, uh, people are not driving flash cars or building properties that aren't needed or anything like that. So they're not wasting anything. Um, they're not indulging in, in conspicuous consumption, as we are in the West. Um, but they are taking care of all the necessities. How do we contact you if, if we want to do more, and what, what else can we do to, to lend a hand here? Well, look, there is um, our group, Australians for Kurdistan, which is based in Melbourne. There's an equivalent group in Sydney. Um, people are welcome to contact us and find out what we do and get involved. You know, we're frankly a small group, but it'd be great if we were a lot larger. Um, this is a, uh, an historic movement or struggle that really deserves widespread support around the world. Um, and in general in Australia is not well known or understood. Um, so it'd be great if people can contact us, we can send information, um, they can get involved in the things that we do, which are sort of the typical things that small groups in Australia do. We prepare literature, we hand it out, we occasionally hold rallies. Um, we work closely, we're, a, we're what's called a solidarity group, so we work closely with the Kurdish community here in Victoria, Kurdish Democratic Community Centre of Victoria. Um, we meet with them and we... We work together. Um, we do what we can to support them and the Kurdish movement more generally. Um, just to give you an example, right now as we speak, there's a hunger strike got underway here in Melbourne um, of, of Kurdish people and, and supporters are lending a hand. That'll go on today, tomorrow and over the weekend. Um, and it's being done in, in, um, uh, in support of other hunger strikes that are occurring around the world. And they're, they're being done in support of to people who are in prison in Turkey who are um, striking in support of the imprisoned leader of the movement, Mr. Ojalan. All right. Well, in 30 seconds, have you got anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, thanks for the opportunity to discuss this. Um, it, there are very few such opportunities in Australia, unfortunately. Not enough attention has been paid to this, this, this uh, what's going on there, and uh, it's been great to have a good length of time to discuss it with you. Thanks very much. No worries. All right. Well, uh, Fionn Scoutis from Australians for Kurdistan. Thank you very much. Thank you.